Live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sarkin. Coming up, we're talking about a bad case of stellar heartburn, and Hayabusa 2 gives a kiss to the asteroid Ryugo, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in this beautiful universe, because that's exactly what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. So call 888-581. No, don't call. Do not. We got rid of the phone number, but I'm just running on autopilot now. There is no phone number. There's just a voicemail on the website, spaceradioshow.com. You can leave a voicemail from anywhere in the world at any time. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about the responsibility of scientists to the community. But first, the news. ...and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. Hello, space fans. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State. And for the next half hour, your agent of the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio where we talk about all the amazing, beautiful, powerful, and sometimes devastatingly ugly things in this universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Studio A of WCBE Radio Columbus. So leave a voicemail on our website, spaceradioshow.com, and I will play back that voicemail, and then I will answer the question. Very straightforward. You can also follow along on the live streams on YouTube and Twitch. Again, spaceradioshow.com for those links, and you can tune in live every Thursday at 4 p.m. from around the world. We have space cadets coming in from Ashburton, New Zealand, Atlanta, Georgia, Eureka, California, Richmond, Virginia, Germantown, Maryland, Kempner, Texas, Lancaster, California, Carlo, Ireland, Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, and of course, more. Seriously, folks, if only prep 10 minutes of show material tops, actually not even that. So get those questions in. Before I start taking questions, I want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently when it comes to space. And there's one cool astrophysics story and then one cool solar system-y story. So the the astrophysics story is there's this nova, a nova, which is a flaring star in the constellation Andromeda that has basically been flaring roughly every year for the past million years. This is ridiculous. And to make Nova happen, this is such a fun scenario. You have the leftover remnant of a star called a white dwarf. It's, you know, small. And then surrounding it is another star, a binary companion. And that binary companion is close enough to be to the white dwarf that some of that material gets pulled onto the surface of the white dwarf. And it just builds and builds and builds like your anxieties and your tensions. And it builds a thick atmosphere of hydrogen until it just reaches a boiling point and goes nuts. Critical mass nuclear fusion chain reaction blows the whole thing off in a huge flash. And this increases the brightness of this white dwarf to be like a million times that of the sun. So we can see it pretty easily when these Nova go off. Now, this is a very common scenario. Nova happen all the time. It's not so happened to have these kind of recurring Nova where the situation is just right, where that binary companion dumps material on, it flashes, and then it dumps material on, and it flashes, dumps material on, and it flashes, especially every year. Like, boom, boom, boom. Imagine how quickly this much material 
must fall onto the surface of this white dwarf in order to trigger this nuclear chain reaction. And it's able to do it every year. And it's able to do it reliably every year for a million years. As a consequence, every time one, there's one of these flashes, sends this huge blast of material out into the surrounding medium. So this particular system, this star, has this giant shell that's like 400 light years across of material left over from all these flashes, all these novas. So that's way out there in the Andromeda galaxy, thankfully not close to us. Close to us, however, is the Japanese Hayabusa 2 spacecraft, which is honing in on the asteroid Ryugu, getting there tonight. And you can actually follow along live uh, to watch this happen. They're doing a sample return mission. So the spacecraft Hayabusa is going to send down a little arm thingy, kind of looks like a proboscis. And then out of that, it's going to spit out a little canister of, of stuff that's going to blow up. So it's going to hit the surface and go and send a bunch of stuff out. And then it will suck it up with this to be proboscis thing. Uh, I'm sure they have better and much more technical names for all of this, but that's how I'm imagining it. So it's going to take a little slurp of a comet, put that little slurp in a canister and send that canister back to Earth. After a couple years, it will land here on the surface of the Earth. We can open it up and we can taste a comet. I'm sure there's some actual research and science applications other than seeing what a comet tastes like. Or sorry, asteroid. It's an asteroid Ryugu. Uh, We're going to find out what an asteroid tastes like. You know some scientists somewhere when no one's looking is like playing with the sample. You know that they wet their finger and touch it a little bit and then taste it again. You know they're going to do it. Let's not joke around. Someone in this world has tasted an asteroid or a comet bit that's been returned some space. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's got to happen. It's got to happen. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. Let's have some questions. We've got a voicemail ready to go. Greg, hit the button. Hi, my name is Asra. Why is the Earth tilted? What a wonderful question, Azra. Um, yeah, so the, the Earth is tilted. We're at like 23 and a half degrees, and this is relative to our orbit. So we orbit around the sun, and we're also spinning like a top. But we're not spinning like a top straight up. We're tilted off to the side by 23 degrees, and this gives us all of our wonderful seasons that we all get to enjoy, especially winter when it grinds into your very soul. Sorry, I have have some issues with winter. I won't go there. Now, when you look at the different tilts of the planets, planets have all sorts of tilts. Some have no tilt at all. Most extreme ones like Uranus are like totally tilted on their side where their North Pole points directly into the plane of its orbit. So it's, it's like 90 degrees. It's crazy. And there's all sorts of cool physics that go into the tilts. It's all sorts of processes. So it could just be random little tugs and pulls from all the other planets in the solar system. Yeah, we're close to Venus. We're close to Mars. Jupiter's way out there, but it's pretty big. And sometimes these little gravitational nudges are just like little whispers that can actually start to tilt planets on their side. This, of course, takes millions of years to do, but it's totally possible. Sometimes there are giant impacts 
the Earth when it was first forming was smacked by something the size of Mars very early on. That's what gave us our moon. It may have caused our tilt. Certainly when you're looking at something like Uranus, with its massive tilt, uh, something dreadful must have happened to Uranus long ago uh, to make that kind of disaster. And then you look at something like Mars that doesn't have much of a tilt at all, and you're like, well, okay, this is a, you know, pretty mild history. So every planet is going to have some sort of tilt. We happen to end up with 23 and a half degrees. We could have been 15. It could have been 57. We just happen to end up with 23. There's no particular reason why the spin of our planet has to be perfectly aligned with the plane of our orbit. Now, there is a relationship between our moon and the tilt of the Earth. If we didn't have the moon, our tilt would change. See, these tilts aren't fixed with time. They actually vary. The planets will wibble wobble. They won't fall over, but they will wibble wobble. And and I'm talking very slowly, like hundreds of thousands, millions of years, these tilts will change. But our tilt is stabilized by the moon. The moon, having this big moon in orbit around us, it almost acts like a counterweight that prevents us from changing our tilt very much. So if we're ever tempted to like lean in or lean out, just the sheer weight of the moon in orbit around us is like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Are you, are you sure you want to do that, Earth? And Earth's like, okay, good. Thank you, moon, for calming me down. So we probably have the moon to thank for our stable tilt. Could you imagine? Could you imagine, you're about to because I'm asking you to, how the evolution of life would be affected if our tilt changed all the time, right? We have these regular, dependable seasons, and so much of life depends on that rhythm of the seasons. It can count on it. It can count on it. But what if over the course of, say, 10,000 or 100,000 years, we went from 23-degree tilt to 90-degree tilt? That would be a radically different looking Earth. And then what if it flipped upside down and went back and forth? And over the course of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, our cycles of the seasons changed faster than evolution could keep up. That would radically alter the trajectory of life on the Earth. I don't think it would snuff life out, but I bet it would look very, very different. So we might have the moon to thank for us. The one good thing our moon did was, you know, allow for stable seasons over millions of years and allow life to develop. Wait, okay, so, okay. If you're going to do one thing, moon, it might as well be that. Thank you, moon. That is a fantastic question. Thank you so much, Azra. A wonderful question. I love the simple, straightforward questions because simple does not mean easy. Simple questions are some of the most powerful questions you can possibly ask about the universe around us. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. This show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can keep this show going. And yes, it really is you. It's all up to you. I'm not looking at anyone else. I'm looking at you, and I'm asking you. No, not, not you, not you. But next to you, there, you, I'm asking you to contribute. And I will see you after the break. It's well known that public radio listeners are a cut above. 
So we sense a Mensa with WCBE's listeners. That's why we know you'll tell your smart speaker, play WCBE whenever you want the very best in news and music. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more questions ready to go. We've got some live stream Space Cadet questions ready to go, plus another voicemail. But I'll start off with this question over on YouTube. Are there any plans for colonies on the moon or only rovers? Yeah, so it depends on what you mean by plans. There have technically been plans to put bases on the moon since forever, like as soon as we're done with the Apollo mission, like, okay, let's, let's start hauling it up. Let's get the walls and the roofs and the plumbing and the electrical and the HVAC. Like, let's just do it. Get some drywall up there. Technically plans have been around for a very long time, but feasible plans that can actually be achieved with modern day technology or reasonable extensions of modern day technology. Those are always a little bit sketchy because the moon doesn't have much, all right? The moon has moon dirt, which is great for building moon walls and moon roofs and moon floors, but you don't really get much after that. So you need a lot, a lot of raw materials from Earth. And you just, so you just need to launch like a thousand launches to get you your first start of a moon colony. Like you just need tons of stuff. Like it took, it took us forever to build the International Space Station. I don't know how long. It was like five years, six, seven years, over dozens of launches to haul up the International Space Station bit by bit. So to build a moon base is going to be that much harder, that much rough. Like it's just going to be, it's just going to be hard. So there are plans for moon bases floating around like there always are. But to actually do it, well, you know, Plans are great until you actually start doing something and then all your plans fall apart. So we'll see what an actual moon base would look like. Another question over on YouTube from Space TV. Can stars orbit each other as closely as the planets do in our solar system? The answer is, oh, heck yeah. Man, stars orbit any way they feel like. There's no rule book. They'll just do what they want. Man, we've got stars orbiting stars closer than Mercury is to our sun. And farther than Pluto is from our sun. Like some stars orbit each other like a light year apart. And sometimes there's triple systems and quadruple systems. Sometimes you'll have like a little binary nearby each other. And that's called a tight binary because that sounds pretty cool. You got a tight binary and then there's a third star orbiting that. Sometimes they're more spread out. Sometimes there's little stars orbiting big stars. Sometimes it's two stars of equal size orbiting each other. Sometimes they're spiraling in to crash into each other. So it's just it's just a mess out there, folks. Man, you look up in that sky, you don't know what you're going to get. Now, let's uh, switch over to a voicemail. We got a voicemail from Hunter here. Greg, play the tape. Hello, this is Hunter Rothman. I'm curious about why a string is better than a point particle. What makes it so much better than it being a point particle, essentially? Thank you. Bye. A great question here asking about string theory, which is a very hypothetical, super hypothetical, a way to explain fundamental physics. So uh, the modern view we have of, of fundamental physics and particles is that if you look at an electron, 
just a good old-fashioned electron, the electron really doesn't take up any space. It is a zero-dimensional point. It is a thing that has properties like charge and spin and mass, but it doesn't have any of its own volume. It makes its presence known through its mass and its charge. Like you try to get close to it, its electric charge will repel you, but its mass will attract you. But in and of itself, it takes up no volume. So if you put two electrons together, the two electrons together are, of course, going to take up space because they hate each other. And so they're going to try to be as far apart away from each other as possible. So right there with a system of electrons, you can get some volume, but the electron itself doesn't take up any volume. Some people are bugged by this. Other people's are not. So don't, you know, I will let you fall on that spectrum of thinking that's all right and not all right on your own. But extensions, highly theoretical, highly hypothetical extensions to our standard picture of how fundamental physics works, replaces all these point particles with strings, with little bits of space-time itself. They're all curled up and wrapped around each other. And these strings can, can vibrate, they can split apart, they can curl in on themselves. And depending on how they vibrate or split apart or curl in on themselves, they express themselves differently. So if you vibrate one way, then you'll have a certain mass and electric charge. And if you vibrate another way, you'll have a different mass and a different electric charge. And this is like the fundamental hope of string theory is that you can explain all the physics like, why do electrons have this certain amount of electric charge? Why do they have this amount of mass instead of another kind of mass? The hope of string theory is that it all comes from the behavior of strings. But uh, string theory is not proven. It has not been tested at all. Uh, the math hasn't even been really worked out where you can actually say, oh, yes, the electron mass must be this because this is a string vibrating with this way. This is a hope of string theory, but no one's been able to crack the math yet. So take of it what you will. There's an advantage there that you get to replace these point particles with no volume with little wavy bits of strings. And, and if that helps you sleep better at night, then go ahead and think it. Now, there's another question over on YouTube now, now that we're in this kind of particle physics mode from George asking, what are virtual particles and how do we know they exist? So you may have heard this term called virtual particles. I'm going to challenge everyone here that if you ever, ever, ever hear the term virtual particles, they are neither virtual nor particles. When we look at, say, two electrons interacting with the electromagnetic force, in the picture of fundamental particle physics, they are, quote unquote, bouncing little virtual particles, virtual photons back and forth to each other. And that's how they communicate, quote unquote, they communicate with each other. Just ignore that is a very, very poorly chosen bit of jargon that I myself am not very big fan of because it's more confusing than elucidating. So instead, I just think of electrons interacting with electrons. Like the math is there. Let the math speak for itself. You don't need to put fancy words on top of it, especially confusing sounding uh, fancy words like virtual and particle. It's the way particles interact with each other but it's a very, very confusing way to picture it, so just don't even bother. 
just don't even bother. Speaking of interacting, one last question. I've got 30 seconds in this segment. Man, does Dark Matter, this is uh, Dodgy Blaster, does Dark Matter interact with Dark Matter? We don't know. We don't know. It might or it might not. We're kind of still working on it, so give us a little bit more time. We're almost out of time today, speaking of time, on Space Radio. But before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get just a little bit closer to you. And recently, I was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, UIUC, where that's my alma mater. I got my PhD there in physics in 2011, and I got to come back and give a little talk. I gave the astronomy colloquium there. And I gave one of my favorite talks to do, which isn't about research, but it's about science communication. And it's my favorite talk to do because I do very little talking in it. I have seven slides and they're all questions. They're all discussion prompts, uh, you know, challenging scientists to think about science communication, to think about what they are not doing or not doing when it comes to science communication why they should do science communication, what are some ways they could, what are some barriers, what are some problems with the existing model. It's a really, really fun talk to give because no two talks are the same, no two departments are ever the same. And in this discussion I had with the astronomy department at UIUC, we really, really dug into why scientists should communicate with the public. And I'm glad some – I have a favorite answer, and I'm glad someone else gave my favorite answer, which is you, the public, literally paid for it. It is your tax dollars that paid for this science. I mean you didn't pay for the Hayabusa probe. That was the Japanese tax dollars. Uh, but this research that I presented earlier about this uh, Nova that recurs every year, you paid for it. You pay, It's your money. And usually when you spend money, you like to know what you got. And in this case, you got some really cool stuff to know about the universe. And it shouldn't be locked up in ivory towers. You're just renting the brains of scientists to figure out stuff for you. It is you can demand the right to know what we've learned in science because you literally paid for it. It's yours. And if scientists aren't doing a good job of communicating it, that's the scientist's fault because it's your money. You deserve it. You paid 10 bucks. You deserve to know what you got. And so I challenge scientists around the country to find ways to communicate their science. They don't have to do it well. They just have to start doing it because the people they're talking to, the non-scientists, paid for that knowledge. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by you know who. Visit patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Heather for producing today, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, Dan Michalko for being awesome, and all the fine crew at WCB Radio for making this show possible. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can leave a voicemail on the website, or you can catch the live streams on YouTube and Twitch. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing and of transmissions.